Father, thanks for this morning. We love you. We thank you that we get to gather here in your name. And Lord, we just ask that you'd speak to us this morning. Let this time together be profitable. We pray that you would use it for your honor and for your glory. Please let our hearts be soft, that we might be able to receive your word in a way that it would bear fruit, and that you would receive all the honor and glory from our lives. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. Morning, guys. Am I on? I'm, okay, sorry. Couldn't hear for sure. Yeah, good morning. Got your Bibles, grab them. Go to Matthew chapter 6. Good to be with you on this chilly day out here on the west side. Um, Matthew chapter 6, portion of the Sermon on the Mount. Be reading verses uh, 5 through 13 here. Verses 5 through 13. Matthew 6, starting in verse 5, it says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's just pray one more time. Heavenly Father, please open the eyes of our heart that we might see wonderful things from your word. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. So as you guys know, starting off here in 2024, just doing a little series on discipleship that very creatively is just called Disciple. Um, Last week, Mark and I talked about how disciples learn, because disciple literally means uh, learner. Um, And this week, we're going to talk about how disciples pray. Disciples pray. We're a big believer here at Mercy Hill, at Mercy Hill, in just fundamentals. And so we're just starting the year just going back over some fundamentals uh, of our faith. Um, Fundamentals will get you a very, very long way in the Christian life. You don't need to know a bunch of fancy, a bunch of fancy stuff. um, But if you know some fundamentals, you really can have a thriving relationship with Jesus Christ uh, as we use the means of grace that he's given us. Now, uh, over the years, um, not just of pastoring and doing ministry, but also of just being a disciple and walking with Jesus, I found that the topic of prayer carries with it uh, an unbelievable complexity and tension that I would like to argue was never really meant to be there. Uh, And yet, I must admit that I feel the tension this morning even as I stand up here uh, to preach about prayer. Let me try to describe the tension for you briefly. First of all, I think that most of us just kind of know that we should pray more, and yet we don't. And therefore, um, deep in our hearts, we kind of are predisposed, so to speak, uh, with at least some sense of kind of condemnation or guilt that we kind of tend to carry with us uh, in regards to our lack of prayer. So as the preacher stands up and announces that the topic at hand is prayer, um, what usually happens is that the listeners just kind of reach for their invisible helmet and they just kind of strap it on and they're like, okay, let's just get ready to be bludgeoned for the next 30 minutes or so on how we need to pray more. Or here at Mercy Hill, maybe more than 30 minutes, more like 45 minutes to an hour. Um, just kidding. Uh, but another tension that seems to be baked into the topic of prayer um, is that even when we do it, we, we just tend to feel like we're just not very good at it. Um, I think many of us feel about prayer the same way I feel about playing the game Dutch Blitz. Anybody play Dutch Blitz? Anybody? I hate the game Dutch Blitz, okay? At every family get-together on my side, um, my mom and my sisters, they always, and they always want to play Dutch Blitz. And I refuse to participate, even though um, I know the whole point is just to play, game, you know, play a game together and to have a good time of fellowship. I just can't bring myself to do it because it all goes too fast, and I never, ever win, and so I just feel like a loser. 
And so to avoid that feeling, I just kind of stay away from it. And I think many of us kind of have the same attitude in regards to prayer in that we just kind of feel like we're not very good at it. We don't really believe we're ever going to see any answers. And so in order to avoid that kind of disappointment and that sense of failure, we just kind of stay away from it and we just, we just kind of avoid it in that sense. And then, of course, there's the tension that exists uh, within our Western world and being shaped so heavy by the Enlightenment is that, and that even as Christians... At the end of the day, I'm convinced that we kind of default to this idea that, well, if you can't see it, touch it, taste it, etc., then it probably isn't real. And so doing something like prayer seems like something that might be good for some people, but here in the West, we just get her done. Just tell me what to do, and we'll get her done, man. And so we like tasks, and we like lists, and we like things to do. And then there's the tension that I feel, even in standing up here to preach about prayer this morning, because I know that in preparing to preach about prayer, I could have prayed more than I did in getting ready for this message, right? And so there's a lot of tension that gets baked in, but I think the fact that we feel these tensions in prayer, along with some of the obstacles that Jesus mentions in the passage that we read this morning, um, are kind of a clue that can maybe help recalibrate our hearts to where they need to be, because it was just never meant to be this complicated. Amen? It was never meant to be this complicated. God created a world that was perfect. It was pure. It was simple a world in which his creation had unhindered relationship with him, the creator, everything, was, as Genesis chapter 1 puts it seven different times, it was good, it was good, it was good. And part of the goodness of the creation was the simplicity of it, okay? And the creation was not simplistic. It had been created by a supernatural God who spoke the world uh, into existence and created things that were absolutely unimaginable. But simplicity for Adam and Eve was central to what made it good. Uh, the Father had provided everything for his creation to thrive and to flourish, or again, to use the language of Genesis chapter 1, he wanted them to be fruitful and to multiply. But all of that began to be distorted when the devil started talking, when the serpent came in and started running his mouth. And the devil is always trying to rob us of the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Um, and certainly one of the greatest evidences that points to the continued work of the devil, I think, in the lives of Christians is the unnecessary complexity uh, that we tend to carry with us as God's people um, into something that is good and simple and that he's given to his people in, just, in a simple life of prayer. Um, Tuesday evening, the elders and I got together and prayed for a couple who, at their own request, uh, ask that we get together and that we anoint them with oil and pray for them as James chapter 5 uh, tells us to do. And they're facing just some physical hurdles, obstacles in their lives right now. And so we, we gladly got together with them and, and did that. Um, and when we were done praying with them, the husband said something along these lines. I say along these lines, I actually got up out of my office this past week and walked across to Conrad's office and was like, do you remember what he said when we were done praying? And it was very close to this. Neither one of us could remember the exact words. But when we got done anointing them and praying for them, he said, you know, it's good to just sit and know that we can't do anything except pray and believe. He said, it's good. And again, it's, it's that there's a, there's a goodness in the simplicity of what, of what prayer is. And so this morning, church, as we look at this passage, um, I, my, my aim isn't just to make us pray, okay? Um, because I, I, we could do that, and I feel like I've done that in the past. <laughs> Sometimes I've given kind of like a drive-by guilting where it's like, yeah, we, you know, at prayer meeting, nobody comes out. You've got to come out to prayer meeting. You know what? People come out to the next prayer meeting, but then the next one, it dwindles back off again. It's been my experience. And so my, my goal isn't just to make you pray, but my goal is that we would want to pray because that we, we would embrace it in what Jesus teaches his disciples here and teaches us this morning um, about prayer and that we just embrace the simplicity of it. So kind of three strands in this text that are kind of woven through it that I want to follow this morning as we just walk our way through it again. The problems in prayer, promises in prayer, and the paradigm of prayer. So the problems, promises, and paradigm of prayer, okay? So first of all, the first problem here is actually where Jesus starts off. Notice in, in Jesus telling us how to pray that he really first starts with the pro some problems in prayer um, of how not to pray. Look at verse 5. He says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. 
For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they might be seen by others. Now, it's important to look exactly at what Jesus is saying here. I don't think what Jesus is saying to the crowd is that everybody in the crowd was a hypocrite. I think that there were some, but not everybody was a hypocrite. Um, he's saying, don't be like the hypocrites uh, and, and the way that they pray. Because uh, while there were probably some hypocrites in the crowd, um, I think what he's pointing to here is actually the obstacle that hypocrisy creates in other people and in, in keeping them uh, from prayer. The idea of the hypocrite here, <coughs> excuse me, and I've talked about this a lot before because it's such a vivid term, it's, it's a word that comes from uh, the Greco-Roman theater. Okay, so some of you guys know a couple months ago back in September, I, I had an opportunity to go over to Turkey and to visit um, uh, some of the cities that are mentioned in the book of Revelation, Ephesus, Smyrna, Thyatira, etc., and some other biblical sites, Colossae, uh, Miletus, some other places that are mentioned in the book of Acts. And it was amazing. Every single one of these cities had a theater. Um, the theater entertainment, it was, it was very big back then, just like, just like it was today. Um, some of the cities had multiple theaters. But this word hypocrite comes from the theater, and it literally means one who wears a mask, right? And so you're, you're just, you're playing this part. And, and what, he's, what Jesus is going after here is he's saying, yeah, don't be a hypocrite, and if you are, stop it. But he's also saying, don't let hypocrites stand in the way of keeping you from prayer. Because what he's saying is, prayer is not a performance. It's not a performance. It's not that we stand up and, and if, if we're passionate enough and if we use just all the right language, which he's also going to address, and, and maybe even if, if we shed a tear, that then God will hear us. That's not what, he, that's not what, he's, what he's after. Um, and so this is something, I think it's a ditch that's very easy to fall into. Again, maybe not because we're trying to play a part ourselves, but we've seen other people. Like, have, Has anybody seen somebody praying? You're like, man, they're a good prayer. Anybody? Yeah? What does that mean? Right? What does that mean, they're a good prayer? Now, now please hear me. The, the point here, and there's a ditch, another ditch on the other side of the road that we could fall into, you know, where I, I'm not calling for, like, judging everybody's motives, and if somebody does use, you know, does have a, a good, robust vocabulary and, and is passionate in prayer and, and actually does, does cry and is pouring out their heart to the Father. We're not to judge their motives. Like, that's not what I'm talking about. But the point is, is that that's not what makes God hear us, right? It's not a performance. The idea of the hypocrite here um, in the theater, it, it brings to mind the idea of, of Hollywood, right? I mean, you guys know that, um, I don't know, you know when uh, Chuck Norris... Anybody like Chuck Norris movies? Uh, you know, it's like the POWs are taken captive and a whole platoon of men can't get them out, but Chuck Norris will go in by himself and, 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 and save the day, you know? Um, you know, when a bomb or something goes off right near somebody and they walk away with just a little bit of singed hair and a few bumps and bruises. Um, or my personal favorite... Uh, just because I once fell seven, just only seven feet off a roof and broke my neck. Um, but so when I watch movies and I see some guy like leap out of a four-story window and, you know, to get away from the bed and he just walks away with a limp, I'm like, that's a lie. That's a lie. It's not true. But, but the point in, in all those things, right, we see, we see these and we're like, but remember, it, it's a movie. It's fake. It's not real, right? And in the same way in prayer, just, just because somebody goes on, like, it's not real. God's looking for something real, amen? That's what he's after. And, and look at the promise that Jesus gives here to dispel this problem, this lie of the enemy that he wants to bring in, that the enemy has wanted to bring into the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. He says, don't do this. Look at verse 6. He says, but when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And listen to this beautiful promise. So simple, but so important. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Here's the promise, church. He sees you. He sees you. You don't have to perform. You don't have to pretend. He sees you. Every time. This is a promise for God's people. If I can go back to the, the Hollywood imagery there, for just a second, um, so many of us 
I think in prayer, act like we're aspiring actors wanting to desperately be discovered by some sort of a talent agent. Dear friends, being seen by the Father in prayer isn't a pipe dream. It's the promise to each and every one of his children. He sees you. This is a wonderful thing. Again, some of this language here, this has probably been the portion of this passage that is most just kind of personally and on a devotional level just kind of captured my heart uh, the most this past week, is that the Father who is in secret, he sees in secret. He sees you. Uh, John Stott, in his commentary on this language of, uh, of the secret place, um, he says that the Greek word that's used here is this Greek word, tamion, and it was used for the storeroom in the inner part of the house where treasures might be kept. Um, the implication may be then, he says, that there are treasures already waiting for us when we pray. And certainly the hidden rewards of prayer are too many to enumerate, but in the words of the Apostle Paul, when we cry, Abba, Father, the Holy Spirit witnesses with our spirit that we are indeed God's children and we are granted strong assurance of his fatherhood and of his love. Also, this language of a rewarder. This is something we could spend a lot of time on. I'm just going to kind of brush past it here for, for the sake of time. But your father who sees in secret, he will reward you. I think we struggle with this a lot. But it's actually quite central to a thriving relationship with Jesus Christ. Now hear me, it's not works-based righteousness. It's not performing in order to get something. No, no, no. That's the exact opposite of what Jesus is saying. But the promise is that he sees us and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. In fact, Hebrews 11 uses really strong language that I don't think we think about enough. He says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him for, and then of all the things you could say about God, he says this, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, that he's real, and that he rewards those who seek him. Isn't that amazing? Your heavenly Father sees you and that he wants to reward you. The Father knows you. The Father sees you always. When you feel that you are especially unseen by others, he, Jesus is saying you are especially seen by the Father. The secret pl- place isn't so much just a room in your house as it is an attitude of your heart. Um, the secret place isn't something magical, but the point is simply that you don't need to bring anything because everything that is needed has already been provided. You understand? Why can we come boldly before the throne of grace. Well, Hebrews 4 tells us, says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confidence, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet is without sin. And then he says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus said in John chapter 16, again, some beautiful verses here, at right before he's getting ready to go to the cross during the upper room discourse, in John chapter 16, he says, until now you have asked nothing in my name, but he says, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. And he goes on and he says, in that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say that you will ask, that, that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from him is that there's this marvelous promise of entering into the secret place and just one more thought on this regarding the secret place can we just take a minute and again my my intention is not to throw shade on us here this morning but with this idea of the secret place can we just take a minute and maybe just kind of collectively maybe grieve wince and maybe even repent together at how much we don't do this and how quite honestly maybe we do the exact opposite of it that even, I'm going to say something, okay, I don't mean to step up, but like, even our quiet times, we need to snap a picture with our muffin and our coffee and our devotional and post it online. Whatever, I don't want to judge people, but, it's, but I'm just saying like, guys, the secret place, just being alone with God, is that enough for you? The Father wants to meet you there, and he hears you and he sees you. Here's a second problem that Jesus addresses, and then, he, and then he, he meets that problem with the promise. Look at verse 7. He says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases, as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. So um, 
in this, in the, this verse here, where back in the first problem in verse 5 was that it tended to be a performance. Here, I think what Jesus is addressing is just kind of an attitude that is just perfunctory. That we're just kind of going through the motions, saying the words. We just throw up empty phrases um, and maybe try to use a really profound, impressive language or vocabulary as if that will somehow get God's attention. I mean, just, I mean, can, you know, I, I don't know. Do we, do, is this the way we think about God sitting in heaven is that, you know, we begin to wax eloquent and, and God sitting up there and, oh, Gabriel, did he just use the word omnipotent? Oh, wow, that's... That's impressive. Or, you know, and somebody's just going off saying, oh, God, out of the cornucopia of your lavish abundance and omniscient wisdom. And, you know, God's like, ooh, Michael, that new Webster's Dictionary he got is really paying off, isn't it? Um, no, that's not, that's not it at all. But I think maybe, if we're honest, I think we've heard people pray like this. And maybe if we're honest, maybe we've tried to pray like this. It's just that, Maybe some are better at it than others. Um, but look at verse 8 and how Jesus gives another promise about the Father that dispels the lie of thinking that fancy words are going to somehow garner favor with him. Okay, this is so beautiful, so simple, and so helpful. And again, against the backdrop of that problem of not thinking we need to use fancy phrases and words, I mean, think about this. I don't know. It just makes me smile. He goes, your heavenly father knows what you need before you ask him. So, just to be clear, whenever we pray, just remember, we're not giving God new information. Amen? As if, as if you know, we're like giving a weekly report to the director of operations and informing him now that he knows, now, now that we've informed him of what's going on, like, then, oh, oh, really? Okay, well, thanks for letting me know. And now, I'll, you know, now he's going to do something. He already knows. He already knows before you ask. And this is good news, friends. This is, this is very, very good news. And, and it's good news because relaying the correct information, relaying the correct information isn't the key to a thriving prayer life but rather it's in acknowledging the glory of the one before whom we bow. Um, the secret to a powerful prayer life isn't ultimately the specificity of our requests or the manner in which we articulate them. He already knows. And I, you know, I was thinking about this this past week as a father. I've got four boys, um, especially when they were little. Uh, <laughs> there was one season of our life where um, Hannah was homeschooling all of them, and it was, man, it was just, it was just a season. And, um, and uh, she would often, she would sometimes, not often I shouldn't say, but she would sometimes call me and let me know that uh, one of them had, you know, broken something or done something that they've been told somewhere between five and 500,000 times that they shouldn't do, right? And she, she, she'd call me and she'd be like, just want to let you know, I told you know, just prepare your heart <laughs> for you know for for what you're gonna have to deal with when you get home because of what what they did or whatever. Now, sometimes she would tell the boys that she was telling me that. Other times, other times she wouldn't you know tell them, and I would just come home and I would and I would deal with it uh, accordingly in a very loving and patient way always. Um, just to be clear, just kidding. Uh, but 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 here's the point: is like sometimes the boys would have a little bit of a sense of like trepidation with, you know, am I going to get punished? Am I going to get grounded? You know, what's, what, what's dad uh, going to do? But the point is I, I had already, like for me, as an imperfect, imperfect non-omniscient <laughs> heavenly father, I, I was informed about this and then I had to get myself in the right place to like deal with it or whatever. But again, God is not like that, you understand. He, he not already knows what's happening, but he knew about what he knows. <laughs> so does, I don't know if that's the right theological language, but like, you know what I mean? Like, he, the Bible says he knows our thoughts before we think them. Psalm 139, before a word is even on my tongue, he knows it full well. And in all of his knowing, he, he still chose to send his son to come and to die for us and to provide a way to come before the throne of grace um, in a way where we can find mercy and grace to help us 
in our time of need. And so don't, don't let that idea that God knows everything freak you out. Lean into it. Press into it. That's why Jesus gives it to us here. And so we've got the problem, to a problem and a promise, a problem and a promise. And the last one, we come to this paradigm here. This paradigm of prayer. And this is probably uh, the most famous or well-known portion of the scripture. Uh, how many of you just kind of wanted to start quoting it with me as I was reading it? You know, the first time, and maybe we, we, we've prayed this a lot. Um, just a, a couple things about this portion here, and, and I'm only going to spend time kind of on the first part, um, and I'm not going to go into, into great detail uh, on a lot of things. A couple things, though, just by way of observation. First of all, this is generally referred to as the Lord's Prayer. However, it's probably more accurately should be referred to as the Disciples' Prayer, because in it, he talks about forgiveness. Jesus never needed to ask for forgiveness, um, but we disciples do, and it's something that we should do regularly, which is why uh, Jesus includes it here. Um, <clears throat> and there have been volumes and volumes and volumes of books written just on these verses, verses 9 through 13. Um, and so there's a lot to say here, and not because people are making it complicated, but because the passage is just so rich and full of, of life and good truth. But there's just three things that I want to point out uh, about the prayer here, and I really think that it, out of everything you could talk about, and again, there is a lot in the disciples' prayer here, um, I, I think that if we don't get these three things, then I think we're kind of missing, we're kind of missing the point. And they're this. I want us to focus on the person we're praying to, the priority of what we're praying for, and the place where God always begins to answer the prayer. The person we're praying to, the priority of what we're praying for, and the place where God always begins to answer the prayer. This is the, this is the paradigm of prayer here. And again, I say that because it's not, again, Jesus had just kind of pushed back on just heaping up empty phrases. The great irony is, is that oftentimes this prayer is just quoted without really thinking about what we're praying, which is the exact thing that he was just correcting back in verse, in verse 7. So it's given as a paradigm um, for kind of how to pray, but it doesn't mean we necessarily need to just quote these words every time we pray. First of all, though, the person that we're praying to, our Father, and he's in heaven. Our Father in heaven. Now, this is not the first time the Father has been mentioned, not just in this passage that we're looking at, but also in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has referred to the Father uh, many times. Now, the word Father can evoke all sorts of emotions, right? Good, bad, ugly, or none at all, which is telling as well. Um, but even if we have father wounds from our earthly father, and we all do, except my kids, of course. I'm just kidding. My kids definitely do. Um, the thing that I would like to point out uh, is that we know that they're wounds because we just kind of intrinsically know what a good father is and isn't. And what is offered to us here in this verse and in this passage, um, and, and not just here, but it really in the entire Sermon on the Mount, um, is that God offers us to himself as a father despite and no matter what our relationship with our earthly father might have been like or is like, all of our earthly fathers are only imperfect shadows of our perfect heavenly father. And he offers himself to us as that. And, and in the power being found in who we're praying to, this first part of it, that, that he's our father, I just want you to think about you and your life and what, when you hear that phrase, pray to your Father who's in heaven, what are you carrying with you into that? And just be aware of it. And I'm not saying it's all bad. I hope that it is good. But usually, for us here on earth, it's a little bit of a mixed bag. And we at least need to think about it. You know, I love reading the Puritans. The Puritans were uh, kind of hilarious because they were just, they were so rich in everything that they taught. In fact, this past week, um, I glanced over at my bookshelf as I was studying for this, and I saw a book that I'd bought in a couple years ago at a Ligonier conference called The Lord's Prayer by a Puritan named Thomas Watson, and I had never read it. Uh, full disclosure, I just put books on my shelf just to make people think that I've read them. Um, but uh, I tell people I've read about three-quarters of three-quarters of my books. Um, and this one I'd, I'd never read. I'd wanted to read it, but I picked it up and I began to read it, and I just pulled up the section where he was talking about uh, where he was talking about this idea of God as our Father. And in typical Puritan fashion, this is why I say it's, it's kind of funny, 
they have so much behind every word that they say, is, is, in, is in speaking of God their Father, he just really quickly rattles off 20 points or 20 implications um, of having God as our Father. Just like that. And the point being is that, is that when he was speaking of the Father, and as I think God wants us to think about here, Jesus wants us to think about, is like we're to, there's, there's a lot with that word. <laughs> there's a lot that we're to carry with it. Let me read very quickly, I promise, some of Thomas Watson's here, and this is not an exhaustive list, but his little 20 points about God being our Father. He says, if God be our Father, he will teach us. If God be our Father, he has bowels of affection towards us. And again, bowels, don't get weirded out by that. It's that, like a, a heart of affection, compassion for us. If God be our Father, he, he is full of sympathy. If God be our Father, he will take notice of the least good he sees in us. Uh, he will take... He will take all that we do in good part. He will correct us in measure. He will intermix his mercy with all of our afflictions. The evil one shall not ultimately prevail against us. No ultimate evil shall ultimately befall us. We shall go with cheerfulness to the throne of grace. He will stand between us in danger. He shall not want, we shall not want for anything that he sees to be good for us. All the promises of the Bible belong to us. He makes all his children conquerors. He will now and then send us some token of his love. He will indulge us. He will spare us. He will put honor and renown upon us on the last day. He will settle a good inheritance for us. It is a comfort in the case of loss of our earthly father. He will not disinherit us. Those are just a few of <laughs> the things that Thomas Watson's like, we should carry this with us when we pray our father who is in heaven. And the second part of it, the one we're praying to, is not just our father, but he's in heaven. And again, I think we, we just kind of throw that up, but that's another very rich phrase. Our father who is in heaven, but remember where else was he? He's also in the secret place. That was that's that, that furnace is awesome. Um, <laughs> let's just acknowledge it and uh, laugh. Um, but he's our father. He's in the secret place, but he's also in heaven, right? And the whole point, whenever you see the heavens, many times throughout mentioned throughout the scriptures, it's this idea that the heavens are high above the earth, not that they're distant, but they are that that, that they are ruling over the earth. And the idea of the heavens is always this picture of God's sovereignty and his ultimate right over it and that nothing can touch him or stop him from doing whatever heaven decides to do. Psalm chapter 2, he says, Why do the nations rage, the kingdoms plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart. Let us cast away their cords from us. Listen, verse 4, he says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. He holds them in derision. He says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Basically, like, you can't stop me. Psalm 115.3 says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that pleases him. They go together. Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel chapter 4, one of my favorite stories in all the Bible. Um, uh, kids, go home and read this one this afternoon in case you're not familiar with it. Nebuchadnezzar was one of the most powerful, er, powerful earthly kings that ever existed, ruling probably the most powerful, powerful earthly kingdom that ever existed, that of Babylon. And God humbles him, makes him go crazy for seven years. He acted like an animal. And then at the end of that time, he restores him. And Nebuchadnezzar, God forced Nebuchadnezzar to acknowledge this. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar says after God restored him. Nebuchadnezzar says, At the end of those days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him who lives forever. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, you see the contrast here between heaven and earth? And among the inhabitants of the earth, none can can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Why? Because heaven rules. That's the point. And our Father is in heaven. But he's also in the secret place with you. And you go to him. And so we can have great confidence. Secondly, the priority of what we're praying for. Here's the big idea in this picture. Don't miss it. Are we allowed to pour out all of our heart? Can we, as Peter says, cast all our cares at his feet because he cares for us? Absolutely. We're to do that. Cast all of our cares at his feet. But it's a matter of priority, church. It's a matter of priority. Um, He says here, our Father who is in heaven, 
And then this is not just a statement of praise or of truth or of fact. It is a request. The first request is this. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. It's not just a statement of truth. It's a request that is saying, God, we want your name to be hallowed. That means, it means hallowed is like a verb form of holy. We want God's name to be seen as holy in our lives and in the world around us. Um, and it's very important that we understand that this, this first statement that Jesus gives, uh, it, it's not just a statement of truth. But we are requesting that God make his name be acknowledged and embraced as holy in our lives and among the nations. Um, so I, I say that one of the secrets to prayer is, is the priority with, with, of what we're praying for. What I'm saying is that the aim of every single time we pray is for God's holiness and for his glory to be embraced where it is not. And if you don't think that that's important, please hear me. Just think about the problems in your life. Think about the problems in the lives of people that you know and that you love. I'm betting that if God's name in every one of those situations had been or would be acknowledged as holy, as set apart, as glorious, as God in a category all by himself, and not just praying for his name to be holy, but the follow-up to it here, that your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven, I'm betting that if that had happened, much of the pain that you're facing or that your loved ones might be facing might not be there, right? Because the problem is always the same, church. It's sin. It's always sin. And so this is loving of Jesus here to teach us how to pray. And he's saying, look, like, yeah, we're going to get to later on, you know, give us our daily bread, forgive us our sins. Not that that isn't important, but it's a matter of priority. What are we seeking first? What's the priority? Um, what's the priority in our lives? And this is something that we have to go after. I, you know... If I can just put a lot of, I don't know, living color on this, I guess. And this is just very practical. I don't mean this, again, to throw any, throw any shade, but just like in terms of growing as disciples, because that's what we're talking about, right? Just very practically growing as disciples. Um, one of the things that we need to begin to grow in just uh, as disciples of Jesus and praying as a church to have a real culture of prayer as a church, is like when we come together for prayer, please hear me here, please hear me. Um, it's not that we can't take personal prayer requests, all right? That's fine. But quite honestly, getting together and praying for Aunt Carolyn's knee surgery isn't the most important thing. Getting together and praying for Uncle Floyd's, you know, hip replacement God bless Uncle Floyd. God bless, what did I say, Aunt Carolyn? I don't even, I'm making these names up on the spot. But, um, like, it's not that that stuff isn't important. But so many times we just give this, oh, pray for, yeah, and, you know, help the surgery go well. Yeah. But, yeah, not, not bad. I'm not trying to be too heavy-handed here. But what we need to be praying is, Lord, hallow your name in that situation. In every circumstance. Lord, I don't know what exactly you're doing in Aunt Carolyn's life or in Uncle Floyd's life, but I know this, Jesus. I know that you want your kingdom to come and your will to be done on earth as, as it is in heaven, in his heart and in his life. And so use this pain, use this difficulty, use this trial. And hear me, I, I know that out of love we should pray for deliverance and relief and, and help for our brothers and sisters. I, I understand that, and I get that. But I'm saying the priority is to the kingdom of God, Amen? The priority is to the kingdom of God. And here's how this works, is that when we pray to our Father who is in heaven, and we're praying for his name to be hallowed, his kingdom to come, first and foremost, the place where he always begins to answer first is in us. See, here's one of the reasons we don't see answer to prayer. It's because we pray, and then we're always looking out here for the answer. Now hear me. Prayer changes things. One of my favorite verses, James 5, Elijah was a man just like us. And so you, the, the whole point of saying that is, you can't say, well, that was Elijah. But it says, Elijah was a man just like the, us, and he prayed that it would not rain, and it did not rain for three and a half years. And then he prayed again that it would rain, and then it rained, and, and the, the heavens gave rain. So prayer changes things out here for, for sure. I'm not saying that we won't see answers to prayer, but where it starts 
is in us. And I think this is in direct by direct way of implication here because it is not possible to ask God to set apart his name as holy and to have his name be in a category all its own and still want your name to be holy and still want your name to be lifted up. It's not possible to pray your kingdom come and your will be done without also saying, my kingdom go. It's not possible to say, your will be done without also, say, without also saying, my will, it doesn't ultimately matter. It's about you, it, Jesus. And so it's all about understanding that the first place that God is always going to begin to answer is in the hearts of his people. Um, one of the most famous battles of World War II that I'm sure many of us are familiar with is what is known as D-Day where all of the Allied forces, you know, kind of focused all of their resources on the beaches of Normandy, and they sought to establish uh, what is often referred to as a beachhead, or like a foothold there on the beaches of Normandy, France, uh, in order to go in and to expand their reach and their kingdom, so to speak, uh, within Europe and take back uh, what Hitler had stolen. And here's the point, is that the beachhead where the kingdom of God always comes first is in the hearts of his people. This is where it starts. And so as you begin to pray this way, just know that I believe that every time we go to prayer, God is ready to answer right now. But don't miss it by looking out here. You gotta look in here. And you gotta see what he wants to change here. And see, this is, this is the heart of repentance. Do you, you guys know what a symbiotic relationship is? <laughs> anybody, anybody with young kids watch the show Wild Kratz? Well, a few, okay, a few, okay, a, a few. Uh, sometimes I wonder into these illustrations and it misses like 95% of the people that are listening. But let me try to explain. There's this show on TV called Wild Kratz um, with these two brothers that are like real life people and they do, I don't know, they have like a little zoo or something, like they work with animals. But they also, in this, in this show, they like magically turn into this cartoon and then, you know, things get cartoony. Um, but it, it, you know, teaches kids about like... Uh, animals and different things and stuff like that. And my boys loved it growing up, and my youngest one, Jordy, still watches it sometimes. And he, <laughs> excuse me, he comes into the bedroom the other day, and he's like, Dad, do you know what a symbiotic relationship is? And I was like, symbiotic relationship? He's like, yeah, that. <laughs> um, and uh, he was learning about the, what's it called, the African oxpecker, I think, <laughs> um, is this little bird that lives on different animals and sometimes like the back of a rhino or whatever and I, it's kind of gross but you know it eats little ticks and bugs off the rhino and the rhino likes it because he kind of gets you know cleaned up and the little African oxpecker the bird is getting it's getting a free meal it's a symbiotic relationship all that to say that <laughs> might have been a lot for a little um, <laughs> but there is a symbiotic relationship between our life in prayer and just our life in the world you see because when we begin to pray for God's name to be hallowed, for his kingdom to come, for his will to be done, it's very hard to pray that in the secret place with any level of sincerity at all. Not that our hearts, I mean, our hearts are often a mixed bag of sincerity and also the old man. But, but still, it's hard to pray that with any level of sincerity without also living that way and pursuing it. You understand? So there's this symbiotic relationship that takes place there. Um, if I can go back just real quick, uh, at the beginning, you know, I talked a little bit about just creation and the goodness that was there in Eden, and everything was good and beautiful and perfect, and the devil came in to, to mess that up by speaking his lies. And I'm not trying, please hear me here, I'm not trying to press this metaphor to the nth degree or be dog, dogmatic with it theologically, but it's been a thought that as I was just been meditating upon this passage this week that's been helpful to me, um, and I hope that it, it's, it's helpful, for, for to you, helpful to you. But every time we close our eyes to meet with our Heavenly Father, and again, I know we can pray with our eyes open, but oftentimes we do close our eyes. Every time we close our eyes to meet with our Heavenly Father, it is, so to speak, like we're not just back in Eden, but we're in the new creation. And there's our Father on His throne, we're before the throne of grace. Everything that we could ever need or want is there. And he created all of this, not because he needs us, but just because he wants a relationship with us. And he created us out of the overflow of his joy and of his goodness. And we close our eyes to pray, and we're there, 
in the secret place with our Father. Here's just the very simple exhortation this morning. Don't let the devil rob you of the beauty and simplicity of that by making it really complex. You don't have to perform. You don't have to fall into just mouthing a bunch of words and being perfunctory. Your Heavenly Father sees you and He's created you for a life of abundance in prayer because Jesus said, it is to my Father's glory that they bear much fruit. Okay? Now, what time is it? Is that clock right? Yeah, close enough. All right. Here's what I want to do. I kind of, I, I can't say I've done this every single time, but I try to. Is early on at Mercy Hill, I always just kind of made a promise to myself, not that anybody was holding my feet to the fire or anything, but that every time I preached specifically on prayer, we were going to actually spend time praying. Okay? Just makes sense, right? So here's what I'd like you to do. Okay? I want you to stand up. Now, you're going to have to move, too. Oh, you're not done yet. You're not done yet. I want you to get up, and I want us to kind of form a circle around the sanctuary here, and I want us to hold hands, if you would. You weren't ready for this, I know, but... (laughs) Can we fit? We good? We'll make it circle-ish. Let's say that. Circle-ish. Okay? Square, whatever. We're good. All right? Um, and I just, I just want us to pray. I'm, I'm going to put just two guys on the spot. I'm going to ask Eric Lloyd, and I'm going to ask. You visited the West this morning, buddy, so you're, I'm going to ask Eric Lloyd, and I'm going to ask Pat to pray, and then I'm going to pray. Um, and I want us just to close our eyes, and I just want us to believe that our Father sees us. Amen? Okay, so Eric, you start, and Pat, and then I'll close.
that they would just get better physically, but yeah. that you would accomplish the deeper issue. Yeah. Uh, so Lord, help us to do that. Thank you so much for what you have done to address the mercy And through our elders, we pray for them. We know that uh, they need you. Father, I just pray for us this morning that your kingdom would come and your will would be done here in this place as, in, as is in heaven, Lord, in our hearts, um, but also, Lord, in this locality. God, we, we're yours. Like we, either you got us or you don't, and we know that you do. But Father, we, we just pray that your name would be seen as holy through the proclamation of the gospel, through the words that would come out of our mouths but also the way that we would live our lives. Um, God, you know every struggle that's in this room. There are many. And I thank you that you know. You know before we ask you, Lord. You know. So please, Lord, we request that you would use us for your honor and glory that so pleases you to bring many people to salvation. Lord, there's a there's a world all around us, Lord, that needs you. So please, please just help us to be faithful. Please help us to be faithful. Help us not to shrink back, shrink back from sharing the good news, but help us to do it with joy and with total dependence upon your Holy Spirit in us and the power of your word. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Katrina. Mark and Jody, we're not done yet, okay? We got one more song we're going to sing, but you can stand where you're at or go back to your seat. I don't care. Um, either way, it's good, but you guys go ahead and we'll, we'll finish out here.